So I guess that is a question. How do you choose between the Ephesians passage or the John passage? Um, You've been saved by grace through faith, or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Those are two Mount Everest passages in scripture, I agree. Um, And so the process for me went like this. Which visual image in my head was most entertaining? And so when I think about Ephesians, I think about the great thinkers of the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, men like that. When I think about John 3.16, I think about the man of the football game with a rainbow-colored wig. And so that's the one I picked. <laughs> but really, do many of you maybe don't remember this. I'm, I'm not sure that I should remember it, but for some reason I do. Um, this verse, obviously famous for many reasons. Cramer made it um, famous long before the guy with the rainbow-colored wig did. But you s- would see football games in the 80s. This guy would wear a rainbow wig and he would either have a shirt on or hold up a sign that said John 3.16. And I'm sure thousands of people were seeing this man on, a, on the screen of a football game. And then they, were, they weren't Googling at the time, I guess. But if they, assuming they had a Bible, they were opening it up and reading what it had to say. Now, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that this guy was actually incredibly polarizing. And if he had lived 20 years later, even more so, how dare he impose a piece of scripture upon us when we're trying to watch a football game? And so this verse, perhaps, while famous and while comforting, potentially and probably is also convicting and something that polarizes us. We actually see that. That is a very biblical thing for this um, verse, this text, to actually speak as much to unity as to vision, as to division. And we're going to get to that, how, how God's love is actually not something that's readily embraced by all of us. Um, so I would encourage you now, open your Bibles if you've got them, or if you've got them on a phone, where, wherever you have it. Turn it to John chapter 3, and Carrie's going to put that up on the screen here in just a second. Um, we're in John chapter 3, where we'll look at verses um, 16 to 21, with a brief reference also um, back to verse 14. But anyhow, John chapter 3, you're going to want to pull this up and follow along. We're going to notice three things. And the first one, John or Jesus is going to talk about God's love for his people. The second thing Jesus is going to talk about is God's salvation of his people. And the third thing that Jesus is going to talk about is the world's response to God's love and God's salvation. The world's response to God's love and God's salvation. Very briefly, what is happening here, um, Nicodemus has just come to see Jesus. You remember Nicodemus? He was um, a Jewish religious leader. He would have seen Jesus in the temple driving out the money changers. He was curious about who this Jesus was, but didn't really want everybody to know who, that he was curious. And so late one night, he sneaks out under the cover of darkness, and he goes to visit Jesus. He says, Jesus, surely... You're a man of God. You've done great signs. Um, Tell me about it. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how is that possible? How can an old man be born again? And Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. You're a teacher of the Jews, and yet you don't quite understand what I'm talking about. And so he goes on now to explain 
God's love, to explain God's salvation to Nicodemus who is sitting quietly. In fact, we don't even hear of Nicodemus again in this passage. It's, it's like the spotlight has moved from the scene to the two of them to focusing just on Jesus and this great monologue about the love of God. So God's love, and this is obviously quite a famous verse. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world. That seems pretty basic. If you've been sitting in church for years and years and years, um, you've at least heard this, that God loves the world. But at the same time, I don't think we really understand what that means. What does it mean when we say God loves the world? Do we actually understand how God shows his love? Because frankly, I think we want God to show us his love in ways that are different than how he's actually done it. We want, I believe, a therapeutic God. This is a God who gives us what we want, who makes us feel good about ourselves and our lives. It gives us some sort of self-awareness and wholeness. We want a God who's a counselor, perhaps. A God who can set us in the right direction and then leave us to our own devices, whole and well and moving along just fine without him. We want a God that gives us what we want. And if that's our focus, if our focus is a God who really wants to love us and, and build us up in that sort of way, um, then we're not going to have a lot of use for words like grace or forgiveness, or mercy. We're not going to have a whole lot of use for a God who wants to confront us and convict us of our sinfulness and offer us the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's, that's not the God that's, well, he's just not warm and fuzzy, is he? That's the God we've got. That's the God we've got. God, the scripture speaks nothing of a God who loves us on our own terms. It's a God who loves us on his terms. And these terms are infinitely greater than anything that we can possibly imagine. So let's look at this verse again. Verse um, 16, chapter 3. For God so loved the world. I think one problem we have is we want to use this word so and talk about God's emotions. About how God feels about the world. God loves the world this much. God's heart is exploding with love for the world. God so loves the world. But let's think about it in a different way. What if we saw it, and properly translated, it sounds better this way for us and for our day. For God loved the world like so. Now imagine a colon for you English majors. Or this is how God loved the world. This is how God showed his love to the world. It's not talking about God's emotion or how he feels. It's talking about God's action and what he does. God loved the world like this, that he gave his only begotten son. That's not how he feels. That's what he did. That's infinitely better. What if God felt love for us but did nothing about it? It doesn't help. God loves the world that much. God loves the world in that way that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so we've got to acknowledge 
that what we need is far greater and far more important for God to address than what we want. We want a God that is going to love us like Jesus loved us. That's the God we need. A God that looks at us and sees us in our brokenness and our sinfulness and says, I'm going to do something about it. And he sends his only son to die for us. And so God loved the world in this way. By not giving us what we want, by not trying to make us feel good about ourselves, by not affirming some sort of internal goodness that each of us has, God loves the world in this way, that he gave his only son over to death so that those who believe might not perish, but have eternal life. That is how God loved the world. This next question would be, why did God love the world in this way? What, tell me about God's salvation. Let's read verses 17 and 18 now in chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, if you just read verse 17, you might be feeling okay about yourself. God did not send his only son into the world to condemn the world. And we're like, thank you for not condemning us, God. But then when you get down to verse 18, you read, we're already condemned. Jesus didn't have to do that. We did that ourselves. We stand condemned before a holy God. This is a status that we didn't need to achieve for ourselves. This is a status that has been true of us since Genesis chapter 3. Jesus didn't need to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Yes, he came to convict the world, to show us our sinfulness. He came to judge the world, and he will come again to judge the world in his sinfulness. But he didn't come to condemn, because that is per something that we've perfectly, we're perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves. We have been condemned. We stand condemned before God. So when Adam and Eve turned from the God who created them, when they ate the tree, the one tree God told them not to eat from, the result was condemnation. It was a fallen world. The disobedient man and woman stand condemned before God. But this has far-reaching consequences because it's not just Adam and Eve. It's, first of all, it's all of creation. God put Adam and Eve in this world to be stewards. He puts us in this world to take care of creation. And when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, they brought the whole creation down with them. Paul writes in Romans that the, the whole creation, everything, us and the nature, the world around us, has been subjected to futility because of Adam and Eve's sin. But it doesn't stop there in that first generation, does it? It goes down and down, generation to generation. Everyone has inherited the sin that came from Adam and Eve. So that includes you. That includes me. We own the sin of our forefathers. And if that wasn't enough, we've done plenty ourselves to contribute to it. It's not like we can say, thanks a lot, Adam, it's all your fault. I mean, we've certainly accepted that and then built on it. And we passed it down to our children. And it's going to keep going on and on like that. And so we're complicit in this as well. 
And so when we stand before God, we stand condemned. It's not something Jesus came to do. It's something we've held on to and cling to. And frankly, I think many of us um, wouldn't know what to do if if we didn't have that status. It's from the very beginning of creation we have stand condemned at Genesis 3. So, what then did Jesus come to do if he didn't come to condemn the world? Verse 17, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the whole world, that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, this is the good news, is not condemned. There is a solution to our problem. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. He came so that we might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what does that mean? That God gave his son. Well, let's just back up a couple verses to verse 14. This is the context for what Jesus is saying in verse 16. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is going on? As Moses lifted up the servant in the serpent in the wilderness. Well, what's happening? Numbers. Anybody familiar with numbers? Exciting book. Actually, it's, it's fascinating and very challenging at the same time. But Numbers 21, okay? So the Israelites are in the wilderness, and they're sick of it, and they're tired of it. And you want to talk about grumbling and complaining. That is what they did over and over and over, complaining about God. And I think at some point they say, listen, what are you doing with us out in the desert? Wouldn't we have been better as slaves in Egypt, God, than out here with you in the desert? They stand condemned before a holy God. And so the judgment at one point in Numbers is that God sends fiery serpents, okay, into the wilderness, and these serpents bite the Israelites. And when they're bitten by a serpent, they die. And they cry out to God, God, save us from this judgment that we have brought on ourselves. Moses cries out to God. Not the people, not so much. But Moses cries out to God, God, save your people from this judgment. And God tells Moses this. He says, get a fiery serpent, hold it up high on your staff, and anyone who has been bitten by a snake, when they look at your serpent high and lifted up, they will live. They will live. Those who stand condemned under God's judgment in the desert, when they look on this serpent high and lifted up, they will live. And just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too is the Son of God high and lifted up on a cross. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not stand condemned, but will have life eternal. What an amazing thing that is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be high and lifted up, to die so that we might have life. How does the world respond to this? 
verses 19 and 21. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we know in John's gospel, and if you're reading it from the beginning, that that he equates the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, the Son of God, he equates them with light, that Jesus Christ is what? The light of God of the world. And so when God so loves his so loves the world through his son Jesus Christ by giving him up to die on a cross and be raised from the dead, when God shines his light into the world that way there are two responses. Some folks run to the light, give me Jesus, give me the light, expose me, save me, help me. But others run from the light, don't they? Because the light is convicting. The light is a little painful. The light exposes us and exposes things that we don't want others to see. We've got um, next to our our, our bedroom is is a vanity area um, that has um, a light switch. And the lights are above the mirror. And so our bed's sort of here. And the lights are are here. And so there's a a nice angle. And, um, you know... My children sometimes wake up really early, and especially now that the, the sun's coming up later, uh, it's pretty dark often when they wake up. And they come in, and they flip on that light switch, and it is painful. And they're like, ah, oh, turn it off! Gosh, it's so bright. And we want to run from that, because it hurts. It hurts our eyes. When we know the light of Jesus Christ, sometimes it hurts our hearts. And so, when the light shines, many people run from it. Because we're full of sin, right? We're full of evil. And there, there's things in our lives, even those of us who know Christ and have been walking with Him for a long time, frankly, there's things that we don't want exposed, that we want to keep hidden, that we want to keep in the darkness. And so we come to love the darkness. And hate the light. And so when the light shines, we don't come to it, but we run from it. But whoever does come to the light, it is clearly seen that God is in them. When we come to our light, friends, our works are exposed. Every bad and sinful thing you've ever done, every time you've hurt somebody, every evil thought you've had, when you bring that into the light, it's exposed and it's condemned and convicted on the cross and you're forgiven. Every good thing you've ever done for selfish reasons, that's exposed as well. Your motivations are exposed and you see finally, once and for all, that anything that you've ever done that is good and positive and holy comes from God. And the light is shining in your life and is shining on who you are. And you're saying, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. And I'm forgiven. And then God's glory is shown out into the world. So I just want to close with this. 
stop running from the light. Stop running from the light. There are folks in here who, who have always been running from the light, who have want nothing to do with Jesus. Perhaps sit in this service or another service week in and week out, and that light shines on them, they run. Stop running. The light's going to catch you. But come to it now. Let Jesus expose you now. Will it hurt? Yeah, it'll, it'll be a little painful. But it's cleansing and redeeming and forgiving. And some of you have come to the light. And I, I thank God for that. But there's also other things that still need to be exposed. And you know what they are. And they're on your heart. And God's inviting you, bring them into the light. Bring them to Jesus Christ. Bring them to his cross. So that we might know God's love for us. So that we might experience how God loved us. By sending his only son to die. To be raised from the dead. To be ascended into heaven. And to give us life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son the light of the world to expose us. And that's a painful thing, Lord. And I pray that you would take away that fear, the pains, fear of the exposure, that you would allow us, Lord, to come into the light that we might receive your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us in this way, that you gave your only begotten Son, that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen.